Welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast exploring all of the tools that we can use on a daily basis to seize opportunities. I am Natalie Millisnell. Join me as I talk through different topics to help us seize those opportunities. Or I might be joined by guests who offer incredible advice and tips to help you walk through life. Coming up work-life balance analogy and, and I immediately try to flip it and I and I keep with the work-life conversation but I say work-life thriving and one of the reasons I use that idea is that work-life balance is a noun it's a static concept it and I don't believe things are achievable right I don't believe we ever get static we, we can't achieve a noun state that's part of work-life thriving it's not just about how I spend my time it's about how the pieces of my life inform and enrich me. And, and we just forget about that part of the conversation when we're so focused on have I spent enough hours with my children, with my family? Have I not spent enough hours in my faith community? And now on to the show. Hello, everybody. In today's show, I am joined by Carpenter Professor of Organizational Behavior, who has published more than 30 articles and book chapters in leading journals. She is also author of Maternal Optimism and is reimagining how we think about work, family, and community. Please put your hands together for the very fabulous Professor Dana Greenberg. Yay! Thank you. Right. You did. Thank you so much. It was beautiful. It was very exciting. It's so exciting to be here with you as well. I'm really looking forward to joining your audience and talking more about these issues and how we can help people develop optimism in their work life and and how they how that helps them be better people and also better professionals. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me because I appreciate it's well, folk will hear it's early for you. So you are stateside, you're across the pond. For everyone listening, whereabouts are you at the moment? I am currently, I am at Babson College, which is a small college focused on management and entrepreneurship about 20 minutes west of Boston. So I live in a very classic bucolic New England town where the leaves are changing colors. I I get the joy of walking or driving to work and working on a small college campus, which is really a place that I'm passionate about. So that's gorgeous yeah the weather's really changed here now we're kind of yeah we're definitely in autumn and I think that winter's going to be here before we know it but I quite like that the changing season and embracing Christmas it's going to be a good Christmas this year I can feel it we had a tough one last year it can't can't be as bad as last year anyway so it's got to be better it's got to be better everything is better that's what we have to just keep saying we didn't expect to be here at this point but it's certainly better than where we were last year exactly now we got in contact a few months back because I read an article the secret of building resilience that you had published in HBR which was fantastic with a a couple of colleagues perhaps or fellow professors yes I published that with two colleagues Rob Cross and Karen Dillon who have been doing some work as well we intersected in some different research that we've been doing on this topic on the issue of relational elements of resilience and then wrote this piece for HBR. I thought, honestly, I thought it was absolutely fantastic because I love the aspect of it. 
in that resilience is, is something that we can build ourselves, but actually there's so much of community that enables us. And particularly, I think you referenced the, the breadth and width of community and, and depth of the community as well, which really helps enable. So well, while we're on here, let's talk a bit about that. What kind of fueled that research or to actually um, deep dive into the, the art of resilience and how we can help ourselves? Absolutely. So when we think about resilience, right, and I know you've talked about it on your show as well, right, we often think of it as a trait or a characteristic of an individual. And we talk about how do I develop resilience or how do I develop grit? How do I develop that individual capability so that when those day-to-day -day challenges that can really sort of drive us down, that I'm able to overcome, that I'm able to persevere and 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 continue and be excited about the work I'm doing. And what we forget so much about is the idea of contagion, right? Mm -hmm. And again, another idea I know you've talked about yeah. on the show, right? But that emotions are contagious and resilience is contagious. And when we're in those moments that we're struggling, whether it be at work or whether it be in our personal lives, sometimes we feel like we have to double down and do everything ourselves. And we forget that we are part of a broader community and collaborative network of people. And relying on those people is not a sign of a lack of resilience or a lack of perseverance, but relying and engaging with those people can invigorate us and get us very yeah. re-excited and reimagined and, and, and help us develop new new ideas or new ways of persevering that build our resilience. And I had been seeing this in my work family research when I was looking at how people combine work and family and the ways in which family life actually helps us thrive and build resilience at work and the way that having a rich work life can make us more resilient in our family lives. Mm -hmm. And my colleagues, Rob and Karen, are network scholars. So they had been seeing similar kinds of things in research they were doing on employee burnout and looking at people who did have resilience and starting to see the ways in which their networks of relationships and collaborations were helping them build resilience. So we, we came together with some of our different ideas to look at the various ways that people within our professional lives and in our personal lives, we can rely on to help us build and, and reinvigorate our resilience. I love that. And you're, I mean, you touched on it there, how actually it's really interlinked, isn't it? The personal and the professional. And actually when we can work with it together and when we can draw and be our authentic selves and when we can show up and, and support one another, that's when the, the rich development, that's when the, the growth, and that's when we can actually really start to pull on the, these resources and build them in ourselves and amongst our community and work together. That's exactly right. And we, we've kind of created this very false divide between our professional selves and our personal selves as if, and that has a history for sure, right? We have histories of norms and ideas about workers and what does it mean to be a professional? And the exciting place we're in in 2020 is that we're breaking down those boundaries mm. and we're starting to really understand that the ways in which I am as an individual outside of work are very much intertwined with who I am inside of work and that I can create overlapping personal and professional relationships that help me in my career and also help me be just better in my life. Yeah. And I wonder, actually, because I was pondering on this the other day, COVID, you know, I mean, there have been benefits that have come out of what we've experienced over the recent 18 months, a lot of hardship, but some benefits too. And I wonder if the kind of hybrid working that we're experiencing and having that, you know, a lot more forced homeworking, 
has enabled us to actually form that kind of different working and bring ourselves more because I think folk are looking at it differently and evaluating, okay, I need a bit more of a rich culture. I need a bit more community in the workplace in order to help me thrive because I'm, I'm back at home here now. And actually there's things that I'm enjoying more and able to still do. So how do we bring this all together? And I think the other thing that COVID is, is helping, and this is again in the most innovative organizations and the most creative managers is starting to realize this is not a work family conversation. This is a human conversation. Yeah. And that's been one of the real challenges around these types of conversations is we've assumed it's all about working parents and people managing their work family dynamics, but it really isn't. It isn't about who we are as individuals and how we show up for the world, regardless of whether we're tending to family needs. We have engagement and rich lives and, and how do we use an intersection so that we actually really can be more productive at work and happier and more excited about the work we're doing. And so organizations who are the most creative are starting to realize and as we, as we move past pandemic, right, that people do have these rich lives. How do we bring them into work? How do we start to make flexibility not sort of an HR policy, but a mm. norm for really productive workplaces? So I remain cautiously optimistic <laughs> that me. when we think of the work world post-pandemic, it's going to be a world that um, looks radically different than the traditional yeah. views of being married and committed fully to one's work and that being one's sole primary focus. I, I'm with you, and I think it might actually be dictated almost by how people react and you know folk are going to drive this so I remain hopeful too I'm with you super optimistic but let's rewind a bit I mean because I I love all of the research you've done and like I say reading the papers and whatnot it really fills my soul with joy because I think there's something beautiful behind how you're tackling the whole link between personal and professional and also us as you know humans and, and, and the human species, as you mentioned, that we are and how we interact. So let's go back. Who is Dana? Yes. <laughs> I want to make sure I say it correctly. <laughs> where, where, how did it all start for you? How did you, you've got an incredible um, accolade and a wonderful academic career and experience. How did it start and what got you into this area of expertise? What was the driver for you? What was the driver for me? You know, I think this is one of these things that on one hand, it can look incredibly linear, my career. And on the other hand, there were various twists and turns, and I would consider them a little bit what I would call crumbs that have led me to, to where I am, that have finally sort of all come together in a whole perspective that I am so excited about. And, and so I'll share with you a couple of the crumbs over the way. Um, the first crumb is actually one when I was a very young child, there were these old Dr. Seuss books that were, um, yes. there was this, it was called All About Me, and, and you would fill it out and, you know, what your hair color was and your eye color, and it was an idea of sort of embracing you as an individual and, and and not surprising one of the questions it asked was you know who do you want to be when you grow up and I wrote at that time a teacher I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up um, and fast forward I go to university and I learned that at the university I was at I could major in education but I couldn't actually get certified to be a teacher uh, that was something I just didn't realize ahead of time. And so in the process, I majored in psychology and I started doing a lot of research with a couple of different faculty members, uh, developmental psychology, looking at young children. And I got involved in something called the school age child care project. This was 1985, 15 years after Nixon had voted down the Universal Child Care Act law. Mm. And there was really innovative work doing, looking at how do we put together school age child care 
for young families? How do we put together the most innovative, high quality for those that are working parents? And worked with them for four years in university. And eventually went out and got a real job and worked in human resources for a number of years and always missed the research and the academia and really returned to academia with this passion around um, gender and women in work and how these issues around childcare and family structure were impacting women's careers. This was the late 90s. It was, or actually, sorry, I started in the early 90s. And it was a time where studying women and gender and work and family was not necessarily well respected right and so it's really hard when I talk to doctoral students today and they say what do you mean you can't study that right I can imagine but but in in 1993 studying things like birthing and pregnancy and child care and its dynamics on work were not not accepted fields and so I studied other things went off and got a tenure track position and in the course of that found myself in a dual career situation. Um, My husband was doing a lot of traveling and had young children and was really lucky that I had an incredibly innovative Dean of Faculty who basically enabled me to continue on a tenure track job but a part-time capacity, which nobody does. They still don't do wow. today. It, it's what it's an innovation he created for, that was incredible and kept me in an academic position. And, and that for me brought back all the research on childcare. And, and I committed myself and I said, you know what, I'm going to go through tenure. And when I get to tenure, I'm going to study what I really want to study, which is really about this. How do people navigate the intersection between their work lives and their personal lives as they move through their careers? How do they handle transitions around that? How do organizations enable people to be more productive in the organization and their work, but also in their careers and their lives? And so that was for me it. And and it took a long time to get there on that trajectory. Um, but I'm at a point at this point in my career where not only do I get to study this, but as a role of a division chair with 25 faculty in my division and I support another division, I really get to live it out. And how do I help faculty and the people I work with do this as well? So I'm getting a chance to do it both in my academic research and the consulting and coaching I'm doing, but also with the people I work with every day. And, and that's really exciting for me. That's amazing. And there's so much of resilience in that as well, actually, if we look at the career, just, you know, and also the, the right kind of folk at the right time, but it being given that opportunity and actually having a role, you know, placed out for you, but the, the foresight that actually this is a really great thing to do to enable you to actually continue the development, the research and all that kind of stuff as well. Exactly. And it's one of the things that I talk to junior faculty about all the time. And, and you, you mentioned accolades, and I'm always quite embarrassed about accolades. But one of the things that's really important to look at when you're looking at individuals and resilience and career is who they are at this very moment, as successful as they may look on the exterior. There has been a path to get there that has had its challenges. And so one of the things I really advise young women and young men who are thinking, how will I be a working parent down the road? I said, look at people you admire and ask them to tell you their their work family story. What does that look like? What have been the twists and turns? What have been the challenges? There were points in my career where I wasn't doing as much academic research. I had three young children at home. I was I was surviving for the most part, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but careers, if we're if we're lucky and willing, careers are long and families are long, and we navigate it over the course of time. And and I think that's a really important part of the perspective and a big part of the resilience of perspective, 
right? Yeah. Which is there are going to be moments where we are going to falter. But if we look at it over the long haul, it gives us sometimes a very different, again, perspective. And that's where the resilience can also come from other people and their yes. stories. So that comes back to that idea of a collaborative network of resilience. Absolutely. And in fact, you've just reminded me of a quote that I've got on my wall that's up here. When we're projecting and we're looking at folk, very much like you say, because we, we don't see it's the top of the iceberg, isn't it? We don't see everything that's gone on below or continues in some cases to go on below conflict. Everyone feels with imposter syndrome. You know, am I worthy? I'm not like this person. Comparisonitis, all of that good stuff. And there's a quote I've got up here. I am not what you think I am. You are what you think I am. So actually what we project onto people, what we see, and I use this in coaching actually quite a lot as well, and what we project onto folk is actually the aspirations and what we have within us that we can achieve when we apply ourselves, which I think is amazing, really amazing when you view it in that context and that way. Absolutely. And I think by, by as you said, the, the iceberg and by asking people to go beyond the iceberg, mm. to share their stories, we can learn from those experiences right? I, not that I'm going to emulate your story. I, I can never yeah. be Natalie, you can never be Dana, but I can learn from those experiences. And I can then work towards that person I aspire to be. So I also spend a lot of time getting people to unpack what's your, what's your real story? How do you get other people to unpack their real story so that you can break down your own feelings around imposter syndrome? Because when you see somebody in a more real light beyond the glossy iceberg, it helps you learn from them in a more authentic way. You're totally right. And the beauty is we don't want to be like each other, do we? That's the glorious, the glorious bit about this world. We're all different. And that's great to learn from as well and see, which is really amazing, I always think. Okay, let's talk about organizational behaviors, because I mean, that's really your area of expertise in terms of what you're doing now within work. I've read now, this is online somewhere, but I'm just going to read something out that I wrote down here. Um, how do people manage work-life transitions in today's demanding work world? How does this influence their identity, engagement, and performance at work? And how do organizational and societal factors influence individuals' abilities to craft out full, meaningful lives? So this is effectively where you work, isn't it? This is your, this is your bag. Tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely. I'll tell you about it. Um, it's funny. I have a, you talked about quote. I have a quote on my, on my wall and it says a rich, full, meaningful life. And that's the frame that I use. Um, let me take back is that when I think about the idea of how people combine work, life and community, because as I said, this is more than just work family for me. One of the things that's really important is that we look at this over time perspective. I there has been tremendous amount and focus and research done for working mothers, working moms, as they become pregnant, as they transition to maternity leave, as they return to work. And we seem to focus a lot of attention and energy and organizations have gotten a lot better around supporting women at that important transitional moment of becoming a working mother. But I know your children are a bit older now, right there. I think you said seven and 10 at one point on, on a previous po podcast. And as you know, that's just one of many transitions in your work yeah. life, in, in your family life, right? So I would suspect when they went to primary school, that was a transition, right? All of a sudden, you're moving them out of uh, maybe a full-time nursery experience mm -hmm. into, oh, now I have to deal with school-age children. And they'll transition to high school, and that will be another point. M my children are in college and university and actually the work world, um, and that's another level of transition. And then we have 
aging parents and those transitions, and we might have our own health issues. And so the idea that I might achieve work-life balance or the idea that this is a static concept doesn't fit the realities of our experience and, and then our career experiences. Mm -hmm. We may want to switch jobs. We may want to take risks and go out on our own and start a business. Um, we may want to scale back at times and all of those are constant movement. And so what I'm really interested in is over time, how do individuals manage, navigate, those transitional experiences in a way that overall they're going to feel positive about, in a way that overall they feel like they're thriving at work and, and creating an engaging work life for themselves and, and a meaningful work out, out life outside of work. And so I'm really interested in those dynamic nature of this conversation. It's, it's not a static idea. And so that's, that's my focus. And I do a lot of research on that particular topic. And then obviously looking at organizational dynamics and societal dynamics and how they can both help and, and hinder people's ability to do that because it has implications for organizations in terms of things org organizations care about, retention, employee productivity, um, opportunities to move people into more senior leaderships or leadership succession issues. And it has really significant implications for our family lives, for our children, and, and for us building robust, strong communities. Yeah. So... And I think this, well, I mean, there's a couple of things there for me. I've heard folk refer to the fact that actually they're not so keen on the expression work life anymore, because as you've quite rightly pointed out, it's not static. So that it's not really a balance. It's literally about how we, it's our life, isn't it? And it's how we navigate the flows and ebbs dependent on what's drawing our attention most. And therefore from an organizational point of view and from leaders, how you're leading by example, it's actually recognizing that and then tapping into what's below the iceberg for each individual person. And how do I, how do I adapt and enable and help support so they can bring their best selves to work so they can bring their full selves when they can and, and, you know, perform for both themselves, the company, but then also the, the home life. It's all integrated, 100%. Absolutely. And it's funny you say that when I get, when I talk to reporters, a lot of times they obviously start with the work-life balance analogy and, and I immediately try to flip it. And I, and I keep with the work-life conversation, but I say work-life thriving. And one of the reasons I use that idea is that work-life balance is a noun. It's a static concept. It, and I don't believe things are achievable. Right? Yeah. I don't believe we ever get static. We, we can't achieve a noun state. But work-life thriving is a verb, and it's dynamic. Yes. And it doesn't mean that work-life is in balance or that, that we're giving 50% each place. It means that there's this dynamic, as you said, circular nature between work-life, and we're constantly trying to figure out ways in which we create a place where we're thriving in that scenario. And people do that very differently. Some people like very segmented worlds. They like to have their professional life separate from their personal, and that enables them to thrive. Again, it gets back to each one of us have different situations, different motivations. We each are working on work-life thriving. It's a dynamic verb that we're always working on. And do you see that? How, how is that in the States? Do you see that as being a concept and a philosophy that folk are embracing and working with? I think it's beginning to feel like it's changing here in the UK. How do you find that? How's that conversation point for you when you have it? Is it, are you knocking on doors and head against the wall or is it landing? So it is landing. I would say, is it 
creating movement yet? Not not quite, perhaps because I'm not out there creating a movement enough or other people aren't helping me create the movement. I find I'll be doing a women's program next week. And I find when we start with this conversation of why, what is work-life thriving and how is it distinct and different from work-life balance, there is this immediate like, oh, this is going to be a good conversation. This is going to be a good next two hours because I'm not going to sit here feeling guilty that I'm not giving enough at home or I'm not giving enough at work or I have to find the magic relationship, but that this is an idea that that's messy and complicated and on any given day or at any given moment, it's going to look different and I'm just going to do the best I can and how do I start feeling better and good about what I'm doing? Um, you know, the, the United States is is complex, right? We are uh, like any country. I mean, Absolutely. these are national conversations. And I think one of the things that we are struggling with in the pandemic is the idea that people are still working more hours. Yeah. Um, one of the data points we've seen is that in spite of, as you said, the good things of the pandemic, we are seeing people work a lot more hours. And so the burnout, um, the great resignation that we're seeing. And yeah. so I, I think people, part of that is a desire to pursue something different. So again, always optimistic, always hopeful, but I recognize that we're dealing with a societal pressure here, particularly in the United States, that's a, a tough cultural dynamic to shift. Yeah. And I suppose for me, this is where conversations like this are actually invaluable because I think the more folks speak about things and the more folk actually recognize in their own lives the the benefit and actually that would really enable me and help me, then people start to get behind things more people start to support people start to speak loudly about things and that then starts to navigate change which is really a wonderful and powerful thing and one of the things that I really try to work with, and particularly when I'm working with leaders, is helping them understand how when they shift their own work-life thriving conversation the ripple effect it has on their team yeah. And so if you are thinking regularly about what are ways in which I am thriving outside of work and ways that that's positively impacting me at work, and then being public and sharing that with your team yeah. and asking them questions. I, I had a woman speak to me a few weeks back who went to a new company and she was setting up her annual goals with her, her manager. And one of the things he said to her was, what else do you, all her goals were professional goals this is what I want to achieve she's a finance person and he said well what else do you want like what do you want in your life what would make this a, a sustainable job for you and one of the things she said is and she's in her 40s she said I've never had a vacation where I actually unplugged oh. and so a, a personal goal for me this year is to take a vacation when I actually don't check my email. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that that's the right model for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, that was her model and what she needed. And he said, then I'm, I'd see that as part of your goals for the year. And part of my goal is to help you work in a way that enables you to sustain and thrive. And so that's a really different kind of leader conversation of yeah. what are your goals for the year. And so the more we can start to help leaders shift what they're doing in the organization yeah, that is going to have dramatic effects. So and so how do we how do we get real dramatic um, change? I, it really is at, at the middle manager and leader level. Totally. And having those conversations and getting in there to actually show. But I think also having conversations with leaders so they can see it on a it comes back to a personal level, doesn't it? Actually, the impact of these kind of positive approaches, this kind of way of thinking. And when you can really directly relate it to yourself 
it opened your eyes almost, although you would hope one might see that for the employees around and people around you just to support anyway. But sometimes it does require that real personal impact to then, oh, crikey, right now let's lead by example. Let's get in and do this. Let's, you know, open the dialogue up in a different way. That's exactly right. And it becomes a non-gendered conversation. Yes. Right. And yes. I think that's a big part of what we're talking about, too. Again, when we talk about what is our history of these conversations of work life, um, it comes out of work family and it comes out specifically of working mothers. But mm. this isn't a, a parental conversation and it's not a gendered conversation. It is a conversation of us as humans, as workers, as individuals who need complex lives. And, and one of the things I love about my own research is one of the things I've been able to find and see is the ways in which having complex lives actually make you better professionally, whether it be in yes. terms of developing new skills we see, uh, developing new relationships, new networks. There are, there are a whole host of outcomes we can point to that enable people to be more productive at work when they have rich personal lives. I love that. I love it. Oh, I actually, do you know what? It really fills my soul with joy having these kind of conversations and really thinking about what for me can sometimes seem quite obvious, but actually when you, you know, sometimes it's good to have the conversation and, and speak it out loud for, for everyone to hear or find the confidence themselves based on this to then think, right, okay, actually I'm going to now chat to somebody else about this as well. And sometimes it's in the, the funniest little ways. And, and one of the things I like to do a lot, you talked about coaching with people is have them sit down and think about the pieces that are part of their life, right? Mm -hmm. Besides work, what are the other things they're interested in? Um, I had a woman who, one of the things she was passionate about was talked about Mahjong. She played a lot of card games and she, she thought that was just something fun she did. And as she started thinking about it and we started discussing it, one of the things she started to realize is the card games she plays are actually quite strategic types of card games. She plays bridge, she plays mahjong, she plays oh, wow. cribbage, these kinds of things. And they helped her develop a little bit more strategic perspective to think ahead, to look at the next dynamics. And she was like, she started to realize that's actually helping my own strategic mindset at work, which is something that I've really been struggling to grow and build. And so there are a lot of ways, and sometimes you just have to help somebody think through and imagine. And then that means that when you're doing some of those things, you're not feeling quote unquote guilty about them, right? Yeah. And we, oh, I'm taking time to play cards when I should really be doing X, Y, and Z. No, taking the time to play cards is a big part of how I'm building my perspective, my mindset, which is going to help me be better yeah. as a professional. Absolutely. Reading books as well, playing Scrabble. That's great for me to try and find words because I'm the, would, but just makes your mind think differently, doesn't it? it and it's quite right. It's all does. development tools. Absolutely. And the same is with true with work, right? Sometimes we need those places where we separate ourselves from some of the complex family dynamics we're dealing yeah. with, right? Whether it be in our nuclear families or our extended families, or if you're a community activist, we need to be able to set that aside, focus on our work, get excited about our work, get immersed in it. And sometimes that comes back with a new, new fresh mindset or perspective. Ruth Ginsburg used to talk about this a lot when she was alive. She was a chief justice, very famous chief justice in the United States. She talked about being a law student. And as a law student, she would have to put her books aside in the afternoon for her daughter and come back and, and, then, and then get back to work at night. And she talked about being a better parent because she had the space during the day to focus on law and being better at the law because that stop point with her daughter 
enabled her to look at the law in different ways. And we forget about that's part of work-life thriving. It's not just about how I spend my time. It's about how the pieces of my life inform and enrich me. And, and we just forget about that part of the conversation when we're so focused on have I spent enough hours with my children, with my family? Have I not spent enough hours in my faith community? Have I spent enough hours at work? It's not about hours. It's about the relationships. And the, and the quality of that as well. Oh, I love a great woman as well. Absolutely incredible woman. Um, brilliant. I mentioned at the beginning book. You've, in fact, there's two books, isn't there, that you've been a part of? Is that right? There, there are Please two share. books I've been a part. Yeah. So the first book is called The New Entrepreneurial Leader. Um, okay. And I forget what year it came out. I want to say 2011. And that one, the other aspect of my life that I'm interested in is education. And how do we use education, not just from a, a vocational standpoint, but how do we use education to think differently about the world. And so that book was really looking at something called entrepreneurial mindset. How do we start developing educational models that help people be entrepreneurial in their perspectives, Mm -hmm. in how they not only maybe approach starting a new venture, but how do they approach complex challenges in their job? How do they approach complex societal issues? How do they pursue work in nonprofits? But what does it mean to develop an entrepreneurial mindset that is about creating both social and economic value? And so that was the first book. Love it. Um, And some of that entrepreneurial thinking then comes right into then the second book, which is Maternal Optimism, which is when we looked out at my colleague and I who had done a lot of research together for over a decade and, and we were looking at the popular press and we were getting a bit tired of books that either were just focused on, on new mothers or books that said, okay, here's, here's the top 10 list of how you create work-life integration and a positive work-life energy for yourself. And that wasn't what we were founding in our research. And so we really wanted to write a popular press book that one had this idea of transitions, right? That wasn't just focused on new moms, but that looked at how women navigate work and family across their careers and across the changes in their family lives. And a book that was based upon data and stories, real stories Mm -hmm. with real diverse women who women could then look at that and say, okay, how am I going to learn from this? How can I use these ideas to carve my own entrepreneurial path or to make decisions at this particular moment in time based upon my my family dynamics, based upon the larger cultural dynamics in which I'm operating? And with the idea that there is no top 10 list, but each one of us can learn We can learn from what others have done well, from their mistakes. We can learn from the academic research to inform the choices we're making at that moment in time. And so that's been our our excitement about maternal optimism. And I will say, we really thought hard about the title. And I think it comes with this idea of it parallels work-life thriving. And and when we said the book, we said, we want a a cheery cover. And our editor and publisher said, well, let's go with yellow. And it's, again, that idea. Brilliant. There is a lot of hard parts to the conversation for working mothers, for Mm -hmm. sure. You mentioned imposter syndrome before. We have things like ideal worker norms. We have extreme mothering pressures in our Mm -hmm. cultures and societies. So I don't want to negate that those, those problems aren't real and there aren't real challenges. But how do we pursue those challenges? How do we persevere, build resilience in them? 
in a way that enables us to be optimistic about the lives we've chosen for ourselves or, or in sometimes being optimistic about the lives that have been chosen for us yeah. because that's part of it too. And you know what? I mean, I think that's an absolutely glorious way to approach things as well, because, you know, again, we've mentioned imposter syndrome. We all we all feel it. I mean, I felt it when I started coaching career um, or trying something new. But it is about looking to somebody who inspires me or somebody I admire or somebody else doing a similar thing and drawing on their strength almost. OK, so how did they get there again? What's below the iceberg for them? How can I then relate what works for me, my life is different, but actually how can I then connect, relate, do something and it enables me to then move forward in whatever it is that I want to do. And it's not being rose tinted about it because there's a lot of hard work. And as you mentioned, there can be real struggles behind things. But if we're able to see things in an optimistic light to start with, and you know that then builds a resilience and, and all that, you know, the gratitude, everything else that fuels and the wonder that we can experience, when we apply ourselves but if we've got something to look towards your stories in your book it's really quite remarkable how that can elevate us and and encourage us and enable us to to just go for it exactly and you know one of the things about this work you were talking about before is each one of us touches people in different ways yes and that's been the excitement for me about the book is that it's given me a platform and a place to have more conversations to do more speaking on this to touch more people with these perspectives and and i think of it as a village very much right so there are people in academia there are people who are in practitioners they're coaches they're journalists and it's going to take all of us working together with Mm -hmm. this message to really create change around how we think about the work-life conversation. And that comes back to the original point on resilience, that community to enable the the bounce back or bounce forward that I know some folk like to use to, you know, to get to that next step. Absolutely marvelous. What a rich and beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. Now I'm just going to end it with a few kind of fun questions if you're up for it. And then what, just a little bit of advice from your good self for folk listening. Does that sound good? I would love it. I'm always okay. up for a few fun questions. Okay, we'll see. I'm not well, particularly, f- I'll start with, I'm not particularly fun. So, <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> but we'll no. see how much fun I can Let's have see. with okay. questions. Well, these are, those are um, relatively um, gentle, I think. Where would you, um, where would you most like to visit in the world if you haven't already visited your most favorite place to visit? You're quite well traveled, aren't you? Because we had a chat before yeah, we came we had on a chat already. Before, yeah, and I, am, I am very privileged in that early in my life, um, my husband and I were able to navigate dual career situations. We, we lived outside of London for a year. We lived Amazing. actually in Amsterdam city center for three years. Um, we've had a fair amount of opportunity to travel and we've had friends living all over the world that we've traveled and visited. So that also helps when you have friends to be able to stay with, (laughs) it enables one to do some more traveling. So where would I like to visit? You know, um, I've spent a lot of time in Israel, but I haven't spent a lot of time throughout the Middle East. It hasn't been something that's been feasible for me to do. And I think to understand, I'm very interested in conflict and obviously in general, because out of conflict is where we build resilience. And I think to understand conflicts of places or challenges, you have to be on the ground and understand the people. Mm. And so I would say that I would love nothing more than to spend an extended period of time feeling safe, traveling in in various places around what we've typically called the Middle East um, to try to understand that better. That would be 
really interesting for me. And it's a, it's a beautiful part of the world with beautiful people and beautiful food. And um, those things always, the intersection of, of people, food, and nature are usually, <laughs> for me, thing. the three. Uh, I'll go anywhere. <laughs> I would say anywhere where there's a great intersection of people, food, and nature, uh, I'm up for a travel visit too. <laughs> I love that. Brilliant. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And um, what are your favorite hobbies? So my first favorite hobby, I'll start with just because it's still morning time here. Um, I love to be outside. I love anything oh. that gets me out in nature. So I have actually a big, what what we call here in the United States, an English style golden retriever from my oh, days okay. in England and Amsterdam. Yeah. We actually, that's what we have. And, and he and I start every morning um, with a run or a hike or a walk. And I just, that for me is showing such an important part of my life. And, and so I'm a big skier in the winter, given that I live in New England, you have to find things that you embrace the outdoors and so we ski and so anything that gets me out in nature I love um I also love food as I said before um so I, I love to cook and I love to bake and I, I love to eat with people um and faith is a big part of my life as well so um I don't know if we would call that a hobby but um my faith community my Jewish community is really important to me also That's amazing amazing okay one one final one for you if you were a superhero what would your superpower be Caring is my superpower. Okay. I, I have, it's interesting. I have a colleague who's um, got a book forthcoming. Her name is Julia Bear and she's just brilliant. Um, and she's been bringing in ideas into the workplace and about caregiving ambition. Okay. We talk about having career ambition and work ambition, but we don't talk enough about caregiving ambition. And uh, caregiving is just a central part of who I am and I talked to my team the other week about the idea that my mantra for this year in this complex world is to lead with kindness how do we not assume a hostile environment when we're interacting with people when we have different ideas and I sign my my emails are always signed warmly to colleagues mm -hmm. um, and and I think caring is a big part of how I approach the world and it enables me to give have difficult conversations. It enables me to say no, um, because ultimately people may disagree with my ideas, but they know that I'm coming at it from a perspective of care for, for them and for the organization and for the wider society. So that's, it's an odd superpower, but oh, I think it's it really gorgeous. is. Do you know what? That is just beautiful. I'm sat here, my, hand, my head was on my hand, just kind of in awe almost. That, what a beautiful response. And in fact, yeah, everything you just said there is absolutely delightful, leading with kindness and actually approaching the situation, which I think is an incredible piece of advice in itself, on its own, if anyone just takes one thing from here, to, to actually, when somebody is doing something, more often than not, it, the root cause it, or the root driver is actually they want to do well. What we tend to focus on a negative perspective when anybody's doing anything, but if we can come to the conversation, and this is particularly um, appropriate work, you know, recognizing that somebody has good intentions behind it, it might not be quite right. And therefore you can encourage and, okay, this is great and focus on that. But that's a beauty, yeah, caregiving. I, I really, really, really like that. Thank you for sharing. That's lovely. Really fantastic. Brilliant. Well, let's just do one final piece of advice then. If anyone or and everyone who's been listening, inspired by your conversation, loving what you're your your approaches and your research and all of the great things that you're you're doing with your work. Two parts, I suppose. Well, no, we've talked about resilience already. Just one for me. How can somebody get involved or actively change what it is that they're doing in their life? Or how would you advise somebody 
just to make a bit of difference or change what they're doing if they want to see difference or change in the world I've said change in difference quite a lot then I might need to reframe that when we're off air <laughs> not a problem you're welcome to reframe that question the where do you start yeah is to usually we're starting in those moments when we're most most negative right that's usually when we start to something something's triggered us in a certain way that oh we feel everything is broken and how I think one of the things you have to do is you have to trigger your mind, right? We've, I know you talk a lot about positive psychology, but yeah. how do you shift the trigger so that you're starting from a positive energy place rather than a negative energy place? And the best way to start on, on the work-life conversation from a positive energy place is to list the things that are meaningful and positive, both at work and at life, right? And then to ask yourself the question, how do I bring more of that into my my life my work yeah. life and that will inherently push out some of those more negative things sometimes it's easier to bring more positive into our life than it is actually to change and shift the negative dynamic right so yeah. for example you have a um, parent who's aging and needs support and help and you can't change that negative dynamic but you you can change what are the positive elements of it, right? Does it enable you to learn more about your history, for example? Does it enable you to bring together with your siblings? Um, for different people, that conversation is going to be different. So the, the stress and the strain you're going to feel from caregiving for an elderly relevant will be there. But if you focus your intention on what are the ways in which it's positive informing your life, um, that helps you manage that negativity. So how do you start from a point of positive framing of the work-life conversation for yourself, whatever that looks like and doing some inventory of it? Love it. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing. This has been a true delight for, for, and for an afternoon for me. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. It's a great start. I know you've talked a lot about the, the positive impact of the positive emotion. And for me, I feel very fortunate. It's 9.45 my time. And I've gotten to start my day with this really exciting, interesting conversation. So I know that's going to propel me through the day and probably through the week, if not the month. Bless you. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for listening. Take care. Look after yourself. Keep well. You have been listening to Seize the Day with Natalie Miller-Snell. If you've enjoyed this show, please head over to seizethedaysimplecast.com for all of my other shows. If you're interested to hear more about coaching, please visit nmscoaching.co.uk. If you'd like to chew the fat over some of the topics in these podcasts, please come and join me at my Facebook group, Dare to Be You. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening.